This is a recreation of the Halakha and Values class given at Yengizel Sharon on December 6th. Uh, I want to thank Roz Farron and Dan Rosen for the terrific questions they asked during the live share. And I'm really sorry that uh, the recording didn't come out. And to the extent that this share is clear, it's probably only owing to the questions that they asked. We I began by reviewing. Um, I just want to make one note in advance that if you're following along on the source sheet, I realized that in the class on Tuesday, we inadvertently skipped class 20. Uh, we did sources uh, 19 and 20, um, 19 and 22 uh, and 20 and 23. Um, so we'll do the same thing here in this recreation. And next week, we'll go back and fill in uh, source 20, which is actually um, poses many difficulties on rate. And it's actually going to be a very interesting thing to get back to it afterwards. So who we were. We're trying to test Ravavad Yosef's thesis that he can establish a principle that he claims is universal, that we can't make gzerot, uh, uh, which are a particular kind of rabbinic decree, but the term is used uh, both as a generic for all sorts of rabbinic pro um, prohibitions and specifically talking about a particular kinds of rabbinic prohibitions, and we're not sure exactly what sense he's using it in. The specific context he's talking about is whether uh, we can ban reading by electric light because the Talmud banned reading by um, by oil lamp light. Uh, as we pointed out that Sheila uh, Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak Obam, pointed out that one might argue that uh, even if we could make decrees, we ought not to because the concern that was raised in terms of uh, reading by uh, by oil lamps is not applicable to um not applicable to electric lights, and neither is any other reasonable restriction. So we might just think that yeah, we could make exera, we choose not to. Uh, Ravadi is working on the assumption that uh, that in the time of Chazal, they would have decreed. We saw that Rav Moshe has a different approach, where he says in such circumstances you can't say it's permitted. Uh, if Chazal would have forbidden it, Ravadi seems to think you can say it's permitted, if even if they would have forbidden it, so, um, because they didn't forbid it. And he thinks that there's a general principle, and he gave six six. Um, illustrations or six demonstrations and we're trying to go through this the demonstrations and see if they either do they prove his point at all and if they prove a point uh, can we narrow the point that um, that they make so we began with the rush this is source 19 um, the rush quotes Rashi um, who says that he found in a response of the Gaonim a Brita uh, which said that we don't um, the Brita said that sometimes Sometimes people don't uh, don't say the the, the uh, special tefillah for Tanya on in the middle of Shmona Esrei, even when they are fasting, and do say even when they're not fasting. And that's why the entrance the entrance and the exit of uh, of a fast that begins in the morning. Uh, so Maru following, you're still fasting, um, but you don't say it. And uh, Maru's night before, you do say it, even though you're not yet fasting. You only start fasting in the morning. But the interesting thing is the Gonim saying conclusion uh, in the, right that uh, they don't. Um, say it not the night before they don't even say it in the morning because they're afraid that you'll stop fasting at um, you'll stop fasting sometime during the day and it will turn out retroactively that your prayer was false and um, the the uh, the rush says I don't understand right how could the Gonim originate Xera after Ashi sealed the Talmud so the rush understands what Rashi says the Gonim are doing as is making a decree that a person is not allowed to say the fasting prayer before mincha of the day um, of the fast, at least on a fast that begins during the day. Uh, how can they do this? So we pointed out that we found, this was Source 20, we found the, uh, sorry, we'll get back to Source 21 next week. 
uh, source 20 that the um, that the there was not actually any kind of decree about this. It was actually just a pietistic practice of some, and therefore probably right, you know probably um, the the rush is objecting to something that didn't actually happen. Um, now that doesn't really change what the um, what the rush said. Actually, it makes it better for Havadia because if the um, if the Gaonim really made such a so then we have a machlokos in the rush and the Gonim. And who says the rush has more authority than the Gonim? The Gonim are a, are a group of very um, anomalous authority. It's really hard to predict what authority they have and don't. And certainly this, the fact that the Gonim made such a to be pretty pretty odd if the rush came along and said, all the right, you made a but that was illegitimate. 100, the rush living 300 years later, what happened in the intermediate 300 years? Um, it would be very strange if that were the case. But the rush seems to understand it that way. But I guess the rush says, I don't, you know, it looks like they made Xera. I don't understand how that could be. And now we understand how it could be. They didn't. And so we can end up saying, yeah, here is a, um, here is an example of the kind of decree that you can't make after the Talmud, uh, according to the rush. And now we don't have anyone explicitly opposing the rush. But what kind of decree is this really? Uh, is it a preventive decree? Uh, it's a little interesting, right? First, it relates, you know, things about prayer may be unique as opposed to other areas. And it's not an X will lead to Y. It's an X lest Y happen and retroactively make what you did illegal. So that's not the classical, uh, the classic zero, right? The classic zero we think is if we let you do this, then you'll come to do that. Uh, but here there's no we'll come to do that. If we let you if we let you say the prayer, you're not going to come to do anything. Just sometimes it will, it will turn out retrospectively that you have uh, prayed falsely. Um, so we'll have to, have to think about whether that is really the um, the same kind of xera as Ravadia, as Ravadia is, is, um, is applying it to. The other thing we pointed out, which is a theme we're going to run all the way through, is that what the Rush may be saying is that nothing happened between the time of the Talmud and the time of the Gaonim that should cause us to change the practice in the time of the Talmud. The Gaonim aren't facing new circumstances um, that would um, that would that would make you uh, would make it more likely that um, that you'll pray falsely if you say anenu during shacharis. We pointed out that there were two ways in which they could have uh, made a claim that things are different, right? And if the Gaonim had really made exera, their response to the rush might have been, but people are weaker now, and so it's much more likely that they'll break their fast than it was in the time of the Talmud, or they could have said. People take oaths much less seriously now, and since the standard fast is a fast that is, we're talking about a private fast, right, is um, is um, or even a public right, is seen as a function of an oath. So we might um, so we might say that people are more likely that people don't take oaths as seriously, uh, maybe because they think they can be retroactively undone, and therefore people are more likely to break their fast. And that being the case, right? If they had made such a claim, we don't know the rush would say you can't do that, um, because that's not a right. Is it really a xera out of our own minds? Um, after well, rush doesn't use the example out of our own minds. Rush says it's the chadesh xera. So maybe the rush, maybe the rush really thinks universally you can't make any new kind of preventive decrees. Uh, we pointed out, but everyone agrees you can make takanot. So we have to figure out, right? What what is it the rush says you can't do? Is it just a formality? It's not a xera, or is it? Um, because there are Gaonic, Gaonic Takanot, so it's very hard to think the Rush says there's no power to legislate at all. Um, so we might argue the Rush just thinks you can't re 
you can't legislate on things the Talmud already chose not to legislate about. And then the Gaonim could have answered all these different circumstances, but we don't have any evidence that the Gaonim, in fact, made such an argument. In fact, it seems the Gaonim didn't make such an argument at all. Um, so we're left with the rush making such a declaration, which we then have to wonder uh, how we, def- right, since the rush does allow for certain kinds of rabbinic legislation, let's say the the takanos um, of, of, um, of, uh, of rabbinic Gershom, they go on and have their own takana about how to handle um, women, right? Women who declare that their husbands are disgusting to them. Um, maybe they're going to have their own takana that's also controversial, but certainly going to, we have evidence that they're going to making takanas throughout. So why the rush thinks specifically this? This is a thing called exera they can't do is not yet uh, clear to us. The proposal, well, I'm making the proposal that the rush think that what the rush means is that you can't legislate without claiming a change in circumstances in circumstances where the Talmud said. Well, the Talmud chose not to legislate, but that remains to be uh, to be verified. Okay, so much for the rush. So we're going to skip now to source um, twenty-two, which is the Shutmari Brona. Now we're in the in the fifteenth century. And the question he's asked is as follows: um, A woman immersed uh, right with Pernita uh, to be right to be permitted to her husband with a ring on her finger, and the Mari Brona responds: If the ring was so loose that when she extends her fingers. And wiggles them strongly. Wiggles is my translation of minanea, which is also the description used for what we do with a lulav. So you can decide. I don't think you wiggle a lulav. The translation is a little bit challenging, uh, but I don't think you talk about waving your fingers back and forth in this way. So minanea, uh, as if she is throwing it, and then it falls off her finger and falls on its own. I'm not quite sure to translate that seemingly redundant phrase, right? Nofela tatabat me'atzma. I'm not sure the difference between Ophelot and Shemetit is in this context. It comes, um, But the ring falls off. The ring is loose enough that it can be removed without having to actually touch it and pull it off. You can just you know, do some, some a su- sufficiently violent motion with, it, with, with your fingers that it comes off on its own. So if the ring was that loose, then the, um, the immersion works. Um, this is the Mary Brona says is his um, Kabbalah, the Pigidole Olam, right? Great people gave him this. Is, how do they do this? So presumably they're relying on a uh, dispute between the um, between the Rashba, the Rashba and the Ramban, um, whether if you if you immerse wearing a loose ring, um, do we say that we make exera, or we won't allow you to immerse using a, a wearing a loose ring, lest you come to immerse using a tight ring or not, and um, right and the, the Tur Paskin that um, that the the, the, the leaning position is. Uh, more compelling, and therefore we allow you to immerse using a uh, a loose ring. And now he says, But now he makes the Henri Brunner makes his own claim. He says that um, right that that this position that he he received from the greats of the world so relies on that dispute. And the Torah Paskin is like one position. And he says, but he says that that's been among the Gonim. By Gonim, I don't believe here he means Gonim in the sense we used him in the, in the rush. It just means great figures um, of the past. And um, the one of the challenges of reading rabbinic texts is that the names for particular eras change over time. The easy example is that the group we now call the Rishonim, uh, roughly the people um, between the people between, let's say, the uh, beginning of the 11th century and the end of the 15th century. Um, so that so in the uh, period immediately after that, that period was known as the Achronim, the people, the last period, and then over time, 
somehow we saw ourselves as being a different period even than them, so we couldn't still call them the last ones because we were the last ones, so they became the Rishonim. And now we're having a challenge because uh, there's some people who think we're no longer in the period of the Achronim, um, so that would make that the, the Achronim, uh, what we now call the Achronim, let's say the pre- you know, people until the early tw- until the twentieth century, late nineteenth century, they'll have to become the Rishonim. The Rishonim would have to become the Gonim. The Gonim, right? So what do we do? So we decided. You know, the term people use now is that we're the Achronia Achronim. We're the last of the last. Okay, that'll work for a bit, but you know, some other era will come along, and then we'll, you know, unless I guess, unless an intervening uh, metaphysical change happens, um, and we'll have to figure out what to do then. Any case, so the Gonim here are not the uh, Gonim, the the heads of the Babylonian and Palestinian Shivot in the post Talmudic era, but they're just great figures, the Rashban and the Ramban. So the Marie Bronis says their dispute is only lichatchila. I mean, they're, they're, the question that they're addressing is whether if a woman comes and says, may I go to mikvah wearing this loose ring? So one of them says yes, and one of them says no. Aval But if the woman has already gone to mikvah, lekeman depaleg, nobody argues. Everybody agrees that if she went to mikvah, then, then post facto, she is Tehorah and permitted to her husband. Why? Because from the day that the Talmud was sealed, right? that's itself an interesting category historically. What does it mean the day that the Talmud was sealed? Was the Talmud ever sealed in that sense? But let's uh, work within his his assumption is that there is a day uh, which we, which we uh, whether at the time or we retrospectively declare that the Talmud was sealed. No Gzerah has been uh, has been originated that we do not find in the Talmud. Um, as we as we find in the Rush, he says, where the Rush rege- where the Rush rejected what, what he considered to be the Gzerah of the Geonim, lest one have some kind of fit and end up eating on a uh, on a fast day. Okay, so here's the, the point I want to make uh, about this text. So what he says is everyone agrees that you can't make kind of Xera X, but that means there is a dispute um, about whether they made Xera Y, and the way he sets it up is that there doesn't seem, it seems that everyone agrees in principle that you can make type of uh, type of decree Y, rabbinic decree Y. Um, the argument is only, uh, read, 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 the only question is whether they, whether you should or shouldn't in this particular case, but no, but everyone thinks you can't make a Xerif type X. So now we have to distinguish between X and Y, because it doesn't quite prove Ravadia's case if there, or at least we have to narrow Ravadia's case if this text says you can't you can't make this kind of dec- decree, but you can make this kind of decree. So what's the distinction they make? What they say is that everybody agrees that you cannot make a decree which invalidates the immersion. But if I'm right, everyone agrees you can make a decree that prevents the immersion that forbids the immersion in advance. Um, let's say you, you can right so you can tell people what to do and what not to do you just can't say well, well if you did it anyway even though we told you not to after the Talmud you can't say and it, it didn't work right, right we can tell you right if you ask the question should I immerse or should I not immerse that even if the Talmud said you may immerse we can say you may not immerse but if the Talmud said you may immerse we can't say if you immerse anyway that um, that the immersion is invalid that seems to be the distinction that the Marie Brona is making, because he says that there's a dispute between the Rashba and the Ramban uh, about whether to tell her that she's not allowed to go to mikveh, but everyone agrees because of this principle that you can't tell her that she has to go to mikveh again afterwards. So the thing is, if we're talking about whether you can make a decree banning reading by lamplight, 
So reading by lamplight is only the kind of decree that you can make, right? Saying you can't read by lamplight is the same thing as saying that you can't go to mikveh wearing a loose ring. And there is no analog to saying that you have to go to mikveh again. What am I, right? You read by lamplight. What, right? What am I going to do that's going to change anything? Right? So you have to read the same text again? What sense does that mean, right? What, what does that mean that you have to read the same text again? Um, I could imagine somebody coming up a highly creative claim that you have to read Kriyat Shema again, but no, you don't have to read Kriyat Shema, you just have to recite Kriyat Shema. Um, and the, the, the lighting is not an intrinsic part of the... Um, in any case, I think it makes no sense ever to say you have to do it again because you did it by, um, by lamplight. I don't think there's any case in rabbinic literature where we would tell you that because you read something by lamplight on Friday night, it didn't work, so you have to do it again. Um, and therefore, if the question is asked, do the rabbis have the power to make a decree saying that one is not allowed to, lead, to read by an electric light bulb, or at least by a single electric light electric bulb um, on Shabbat, the answer, according to the Marie Brona, should be yes. Just like they could make a decree, if they wanted to, saying that you may not immerse wearing a loose ring. So Ravadia uses this text to as a proof, but I think it's an counterproof. Um, the other interesting thing is within the Maribrona, so he seems right. He seems to think that uh, right since he compares this to the Rush, um, so I think the Rush that what are the, the right that the the Rush said that the that the um, the Rush said that you're not that you're not allowed to say Anenu. Um, though he didn't say that you have to pray again. I'm not clear on what the Marie Brona's analogy to the Rush uh, is either, um, right? Because the Rush, the, the, the Rush said that the rabbis were not allowed to tell you not to say Anenu, which is sort of like telling you not to immerse with a loose ring. So it could be that Revavad, that the problem I'm identifying in Ravavadia is actually a problem of Marie Brona, um, or that I'm not understanding something because it doesn't seem to me that the Marie Brona's point is really compatible uh, with the rush. This Marie Brona thinks that you can make a decree preventing people from doing something, even if the Talmud said it was okay. Uh, so we have to figure out whether that confusion is, whether I'm wrong, uh, whether it's an error of Ravadia, or it's uh, you know, a flaw in the logic of Ravadia, or a flaw in the logic of Marie Brona um, going back. Okay, right, so that's, a, that's a fair question to consider going forward. Um, and with that, now let's, let's go on to, uh, source 23. Um, source 23 is the Red Baz, Rav David Ben Zimbra. We're in the, I live 1479 to 1573, right? That's the number I get off Wikipedia. Um, you know, assuming it's roughly after it. So we're in 16th century, we're in Egypt. And here is the case that he is addressing. The, um, Mishnah and Chala says that if you have, um, Peros, uh, per- Peros chutzlaret. So peros literally means fruits, but we're talking about things that are chayev in challah. Challah, again, is the piece of um, dough that you're required to give to a kohen. Um, in theory, um, in tahara, in, uh, right, in, in, in Eretz Yisrael, because in chutzlaret everything's automatically tameh. Um, so we, right, nowadays, we, we assume that our kohanim are not tahorim, so we, right, so we burn it, right? That's what you'll know about the, um, we do with challah is we, right, the we, we burn a section of, if you have enough of the right kind of dough. Um, and by Paris, we mean things that, right, we mean grains, really, that of the diaspora that enter Eretz Yisrael are obligated in the challah. So, right, so 
even though they're grown in the diaspora, but once they enter Eretz Yisrael, then you have to take challah from them. Um, and vice versa, if they go from if they go from Eretz Yisrael to Chus Laaretz, Rabbi Ezra says you still have to take challah uh, from them. Rabbi Akiva says no. Okay, and the Yerushalmi, the Yerushalmi says, all right, what's Rabbi Akiva's rationale? Rabbi Akiva's rationale um, is a very clear rationale. He says that the obligation of challah is one that exists on all on all grains that are in the land of Israel, wherever they are grown, and does not and does not exist on um, on grains that are outside the land of Israel, wherever they were grown. Right? He just thinks that it, the the mitzvah is place dependent um, and has nothing to do with the origin of the grains. Um, now the Ravad, now the um, the Ravad says. Um, the right side, the Ravid, right? If you want that, that uh, Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Akiva only disputed on a Deiraisa level, right? Their whole question about whether you're allowed on the the question of whether if you take Paris Eretz Yisrael and move them to Chuslaris, whether you have to take Chala from them while they are in uh, while they are in Chuslaris. So the um, right, so that dispute is only Deiraisa, um, and in fact, right, the, since the Hirushalmi frames Rabbi Akiva's rationale as the interpretation of a pasuk. Uh, so that suggests that Rebbe Yezer must have a different reading of that pasuk to say that right to, um, to say um, to say that um, that, you're, that, you're, that you're that you're obligated. But he says that um, that, that even though Rabbi Akiva Rabbi Akiva uses the verse to exempt um, to exempt Eretz Israel grain uh, while it's in the diaspora. It doesn't mean he thinks it's permitted. It just means he thinks that there's no verse obligated. It's not biblically obligated. But the Rabbanan, Rabbi Akiva agrees, and right that you have to take challah from Eretz Yisrael grains in the diaspora. Um, okay, but the Ramam said, and this is the right. This is the Radbaz bin Trilokwizik. So he says the right. The Ramam said the right. The Ramam records halacha essentially as it is in the in the Yerushalmi. Right? There's no Bavli um, on this because. Um, because it's right, it's challah, right, and challah is a uh, challah is in Israel, and there's no Bavli on Israel. But the Yerushalmi explains what the um, what what the uh, what the arg- what the argument is. Um, so the Rabbaz says, well, the Ravid said that even though the Gemara doesn't mention this, actually, right, the um, the dispute between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yezer is only Deoraisa, and the Rabban and Rabbi Akiva agrees you have to take challah. Um, but the Ramam said. We ought not to originate Xira out of our own minds, since it is not mentioned anywhere. Is it not so? Right. Yerushalmi has an extensive back and forth, and never mentions that they would be obligated to Rabbanan. Yerushalmi is not as comprehensive a text as the Bavli, so we can decide how powerful we think the... Um, the discussion in the uh, the absence an argument from silence in the Yerushalmi is, and I could also say who says that uh, right? So maybe right? So maybe there is such a decree, and maybe when the maybe when the uh, Ravid says there's a decree, maybe the Ravid means that there always was a decree, even in the time of the Talmud. It just happens not to be mentioned in the um, it, hap- it just happens to be mentioned in the uh, in the Yerushalmi. Uh, happens not to be mentioned in the Yerushalmi, but. The um, let's take it right, the way the the way the Radbaz understands this, that the Ramam the Ramam says, look, it's clear that in the time of the Talmud, um, since nothing is mentioned about this, that it was permitted, there was no obligation to take challah, and it was permitted to eat grains from 
from Eretz Yisrael in Chutz Laaretz without taking challah. Um, and the the Rebbe the, the said, as the Rebbe understands him, I'm willing to grant that that's the case, but we make Xerah now. Again, I think that's not shot in the Rebbe. I think the Rebbe is saying that there always was a decree. Um, right, he's framing it that right that Rabbi Ezra and Rabbi Akiva only disputed on a uh, a right level, but that Rabbi Ezra and Rabbi Akiva originally agreed that there's a drabanan. Uh, the Rabbanan's logic is not a hundred percent solid, because what he sets up is a dispute between the right. But the Rambam said we don't make zeros out of our, out of our own head. But the Rav is not claiming that we're making a new zera. The Rav is claiming that there always was a zera. So now that those are two very different principles, right? A principles one principle saying that we don't uh, that if the Talmud doesn't mention exera, we don't presume that such exera existed. That's really what the Red Baz is saying for the for the Rambam, and another thing saying that um, that we don't make up new exera. So I'm not sure either that the Red Baz is perfectly relevant to Ravavadia's um, Ravavadia's case. Because uh, it could be that the Ram and the Ravid here are only disputing the um, are only are only disputing the question of whether there was Xera, and that both of them agree that if there was no Xera back then, we would not make Xera now. Now that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean they agree that we wouldn't make Xera now because we don't think we ought to make Xera now, right? Uh, right? Even though we think we ought to make Xera now, it might be that we don't make Xera now because we don't see the purpose in it. Uh, the truth is that, you know, that in contemporary conditions, I think it makes much more sense to make a decree in Israel that you have to take challah from diaspora grains because you might say, well, look, if you get into the habit of eating uh, grains in Israel without without taking challah, then you'll extend that to grains grown in the land. But the notion that if you eat Eretz Yisrael grains outside the land um, you'll end up eating them inside the land that taking challah. Why? You know perfectly well that the right that the mitzvah only applies in Eretz Yisrael. But Akiva's position is fully coherent and easy to explain to people that all that matters is where you are and not where it comes from. And so it makes a lot of sense to say I, I don't I don't see any reason that we should make such a decree. Um, so I don't I think that the uh, that probably the probably the um, the specific logic of the case here is irrelevant to Ravavadia's broader point. Uh, the thing is that he does use the language, we ought not to, to originate zero out of our own mind, right? And uh, that is logic that seems to, um, right, that framework seems to be coming out of a tradition. And that's, I think, what's going on all the way, th- all the way through here is that we keep on uh, using language, um, but it could be the language is being used uh, consistently, I guess, consistently, Im- consistently Im- uh, imprecisely. Um, that uh, that we talk about not making exera in our own mind, but what to not make up exera in, in our own mind is a, and we'll we'll see that actually that language comes probably out of source uh, twenty one, uh, is confusing as to what those things are. So let's let's you know summarize what we have so far. We have the rush who says. That right, who objects to what probably wasn't actually right? He objects to a misunderstanding of what the Gonim did, and he says that you should not be the Gonim should not have been allowed to um, to forbid you to say the tefillah of uh, the tefillah of Anenu. And we said, okay, but maybe all that means is 
because the Talmud made up this prayer and said, you're supposed to say it then. So for the Gonim to be, to say you can't now would be really overruling the permission of the Talmud. And we don't, right? And if the Talmud printed something, maybe all the rush means is you don't have a right to undo the Talmud's permission. Um, then we had the case of Marie Brona. Marie Brona talking about a, a loose ring. And Marie Brona says that the argument among the Rishonim about whether you're, you're allowed to immerse with a loose ring is only about whether you're allowed to immerse, but they all agree that if you immerse, the immersion is valid because to say that it's invalid would be in violation of this principle set out by the Rush. Um, so I point out, let's invert it. That means that what that they, everyone seems to agree that we can declare something invalid even though the Talmud thought it's valid. It's just that we can't make you do it again. We can't invalidate, right? We, we can forbid something the Talmud permitted. We can't invalidate something that the Talmud validated. Um, so that's not actually right. The Rush is talking about a prohibition, so that's not really in the tradition of the Rush. Um, but in its own terms, Mar- uh, Marie Brona doesn't prove anything uh, for the question of Ravadi's interest in which of whether we can ban reading by lamplight, because that's a question of whether we can forbid something, not whether we can uh, validate something. And in each of the, right, each of those cases, um, and in the third case, we'll look at them out. That there's right, none of them are addressing the kind of issue Ravadi is talking about, which is, and so really, when I said there are three kinds of cases, one is this is the exact same circumstance that the Talmud talked about. The Talmud said it's okay, and we're going to prohibit it. Okay, right. That's one kind of case. The second kind of case where this is the exact situation that this is sorry, this is the exact. Thing that the Talmud permitted, but something external to it has changed, uh, right? So the example we gave was right. It's talking about whether you should say the fast prayer before, uh, right? Before you actually uh, before afternoon of the day you're fasting, before you've at least had a, a partial fulfillment, so you could right of of, um, of fasting, and we could say you know what that it's true. This is exactly the case of the Talmud, but people are weaker. People take oath less seriously, so we can say the question there is: Are we allowed to? Um, to react to new circ- to new external circumstances, addressing the same case as the Talmud. That's a second case. And there's a third case, which is, right, which is where there's a new circumstance came up that the Talmud never addressed at all, but that likely would have been included within its um, within with um, within its ambit. Um, right. So that's the example of an electric light. If you think that the reason to ban electric lights is in some way parallel. To the reason to ban uh, to ban oil lamps, so we might say that you know what, even though we agree that you can't um, make decrees on you can't make decrees on something the Talmud didn't make a decree about uh, in the same circumstances, and we think that even if external circumstances have changed, you can't do it in the same circumstance. But a new circumstance who says you can't make the uh, you can't make you can't make the new decree, um, right? That would you wouldn't prove that you wouldn't prove that uh, you wouldn't have proven that at all. Um, so right, there's a fourth category also which we won't get into uh, into this week. So right, so none. Of, so it seems to me that Ravadi has 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 really not gotten to the point that he wants to uh, he wants to get to. The fourth category is what happens if there's if there's something comes up that you think the rabbis would have forbidden, but not because of not because there's an analogous decree, but just because it's the kind of thing. It's a totally new circumstance. But it's the kind of thing that, if you just think very broadly, wow, that's the kind of thing the rabbis would have banned. Uh, right? That's a, let's try and figure out whether there is a circumstance like that. Uh, okay, so then the last case we talked about was the case of uh, 
the case of Chala, and there again the um, there right there the um, the the Ravid says that in fact we made a decree. The Rambam says you can't make such a decree. So the Rambam is saying that you can't make such a decree. If the Rambam, right, if what we mean by that is the Rambam says you're not allowed to eat it. Um, now is that a is that the equivalent to saying that you're not uh, the equivalent to saying that you're not allowed to uh, that we prohibit it up front or post facto? I don't know what the post facto in that case is, right? If you already ate it, uh, is it tray for your pots? Right? That's an interesting question whether the Rambam is saying something that's analogous to the to saying you have to immerse again or just saying something that you have to uh, the, that you're not allowed to do it in the first place. But either way, we pointed out that probably the way the Radbaz sets it up is not really analogous because really what the Ravid is claiming is not that we are making a new decree that the Talmud didn't make. What he's claiming is that we are discovering a decree that was not explicit in the Talmud. Um, so it's not clear that the, the argument doesn't seem to be about the same thing as the rush is about at all. So I want to make a suggestion which is going to, um, which I hope will play out in following weeks, which is that it seems to me that there's some kind of underlying sense that the mechanism by which this thing that is being called exera in this context is made is not the same as other kinds of rabbinic legislation. Everyone agrees that you can make rabbinic legislation of the form called Takanot, where there is a specific legislative act. Uh, right? Everyone gets together, and so everyone agrees that you should be able to do that, If you, right? but maybe we require you know, enough rabbis, enough authority. There are all sorts of reasons why we don't do that nowadays, but in principle, you could. But when we talk about Xera, um, the confusion that is creeping in, and we're, we're seeing like lots of confusion, right? because Ravadia's evidence is, I'm pointing out, inapt in a number of ways, and then we look at the the yeah, right. That within the evidence he's citing, there are arguments that are that are uh, loose in this way. It seems to me that there's some kind of instinctive sense which may not have been sufficiently um, disentangled, uh, which is that, as opposed to saying that the rabbis chose right, every single preventive d- decree they made, you're not allowed to do this lest it lead to that. Um, the rabbis sat down and said, "Okay, should we ban this? Yes, we should ban this. Should we ban that?" Should we ban this? No, we should not ban this. Is that more that there was some kind of sense that there was a single blanket authorization or a ban of things that lead to uh, right things that lead to do right, uh, and then afterwards we're just trying to figure out the scope of that broad legislative um, action. Now we talked about in an earlier shir right that the um, that lasius yagla Torah in the Mishnah and Avos uh, can be framed as occurring. At a specific historical moment, right? It's the Anshik Das Zagdola that begin doing this, and we saw um, the Meiri and um, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky explaining why it might have been that you didn't make rabbinic decrees beforehand, and now and now, and now you make rabbinic decrees. Um, so the question is, do right? It, assuming that you that you think of the rabbanas coming into being, and then you have to try and figure out what the status of those things were before. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky thinks people are making subjective decrees. But let's let's bracket that for now. Um, so the Yatrikness Agdola set out on a legislative spree and right and passed tons and tons of legislation right here are all the things we're gonna ban because they lead to carrying on Shabbos. And here are all the things we're gonna ban because they lead to eating uh, right to eating meat and milk together. And here are the things we're gonna ban because they lead to speaking Lush and Hara, whatever it may be. Um, or did right the Yatrikness Agdola just say, you know what? 
all of those things which everyone recognizes are uh, potentially slippery slopes are now forbidden. And then that, of course, led to lots of case law, which was negotiated. Uh, and we had to figure out what the presumption is, right? All sorts of issues like that. So my sense is that the, that the idea underlying this principle in goes ring zero atenu is that somehow that kind of generic legislation is limited to the moment of the uh, to the moment of the Talmud. Although we saw it, right, we saw I think already, and we'll see again that um, in the Magid Mishnah, which I'm skipping, uh, which I'm, which I, I don't think I did well enough last. I guess if I, I may even have skipped it this week, so uh, we'll go back to it next week. But we'll see that maybe it's not. Maybe it's not the end of the Talmudic period. Maybe it's the end of the Gonic period. Maybe they're different things. But let's assume now the end of the Talmud, right? So I think people that what people are, are groping towards a sense that the authority to specifically include um, specific actions as prohibited under that broad rubric of Asusiag Torah, that imperative of Asusiag Torah, that may, right, that authority somehow ceased. And now you require specific acts of legislation. And then there may be a second conversation, what sorts of specific acts of legislation can you or can't you do? Maybe everyone agrees you can do whatever kind you want. Uh, so I want to put that idea out and let's see if it's sustainable. But for now, we have our uh, distinctions between simply prohibiting something and invalidating an act. Um, and it seems that there's, there seems to be at least you know a position right that in the, in the uh, Marie Brona that everyone agrees you're allowed to forbid things you're just not allowed to um, invalid to invalidate them retrospectively and then the confusion in the Radbaz about the difference between making a new decree when you acknowledge that it was not previously forbidden and claiming that something uh, was was a rabbinic decree uh, when you have silence about it in prior texts. With all the qualifications about that, does it matter whether the silence is in the Bavli or in the Yerushalmi, etc.? Uh, okay, thank you for listening, and I will look forward to uh, speaking with you at the next class.